listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma, and I'm your host, Trish Close. Rafino Valentine on the podcast today. He's the president and founder of Valentine Distilling Company right outside Detroit, Michigan. He talks about growing up in a rural part of Michigan, how a walk into a different gym in high school turned him on to wrestling, which then led him to Cornell, then New York City, where he was day trading stocks for almost 10 years. He says he was very successful, but it wasn't enough. A plan and a bar napkin led him to open a distilling company. This was all in 2007, 2008, so not the best time in the economy to open up a business, and he was also adamant about going back to Detroit, but he said he faced a lot of challenges, but he's been really successful. At the time, there were only about 15 to 20 micro distilleries. Now there's more than 2,000, so he really was a pioneer in this industry. His bourbons consistently rated some of the best in the world. Valentine Vodka, world's best by the World Vodka Awards in London, two years in a row, 2016, 2017. He says no matter, though, the amount of success, he's still a micro distillery, and they're still pushing and growing, and they have plans to keep pushing and keep growing. He says when it comes down to it, though, it wasn't about opening a distillery. There's something much deeper here, which he'll explain. He says he really wanted to get back to the way things used to be. Here's Rafino Valentine. Hair looks good. <laughs> Hair looks good. I love your, I that love your, <laughs> we're just going to dive in. I love the backdrop behind you. Where are you right now? You know, what's the point of having all this beautiful equipment if you're not going to use it in an actual Zoom? <laughs> so. Agreed. Show so this I'm a, I'm in the production facility right now. This is our distillery. Okay, and have, I see behind you a couple banners there. One says double gold medal. Woo woo! Two double yep. gold medal. And then they're all over. Us. They're all over the place around oh, here. Okay, hair flip. They're all over the place. I can't keep up <laughs> with them. Uh, Rafino Valentine, president and founder of Valentine Distilling Company. You're joining us right outside Detroit today. That's right. Thank you for being here. Thank you for um, saying yes to the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Lots of questions for you. Um, you've had quite the interesting life. Um, distilling Company kind of says it all, but it really doesn't when we're going to talk about Valentine Distilling Company because when you started this, um, a, a lot of people were probably like, what on earth are you doing, especially when you decided to start it? But we'll get into all of that. But first, I want to know, where are you from originally? So I, I was born and raised in, in Michigan, but about four or five hours north of Detroit. So a uh, very small town. You know, but public school I went to, I graduated with 42 kids. So it's like a farming community. Um, yeah, real rural area. It's a beautiful area. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a big, uh, now, especially nowadays, a big uh, tourist uh, area. So mm -hmm. a lot of people vacation up there now. But, but back then, you know, it was, wasn't very well known. And my parents kind of moved there to get away from big city life. Right. They're like, we, let's get out of here. Where did they, did they move? Where'd they move from? Well, so my dad's side of the family is from Chicago, and then my mom's side of the family is from here, Detroit. Um, they lived in Alameda, California on a houseboat for a little while before they moved back to Michigan. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
It's um, pretty interesting. Valentine, besides that being your last name, what is that? Italian. Italian. Okay. I didn't want to yeah. assume. Um, so dad's dad's side family Italian, both sides Italian? A little, mostly my dad's side, but my mother's side has a has Italian in there as well, but mostly on my dad's side. Okay. What was that so, like growing it, up with an Italian family? Wow. It, you know, it's great. So I'm like third generation, so I don't really speak Italian. I, I had a chance to uh, study abroad there during college, but, you know, we were far removed except for traditions, you know, cooking and, and uh, holidays and that sort of stuff. So it was always fun being in Chicago, mostly for the holidays and cooking, you know, these, these huge meals, of course, mm-hmm. pasta and cannolis and, and all that stuff. That's what I'm Which here I still for. Like to do today. Rufino, <laughs> yeah. that's what I'm here for. I'm here for the food stories, really. <laughs> um, I've interviewed a few Italians and from Italian families, and it's all about the Sunday sauce, the Sunday gravy. We call it gravy. Okay. Yep. Okay. Shoo, I said it right. Um, yeah. But you grew up in a family, I guess my point is, you grew up in a family where food and family were very important, sounds like. Food food and family, for sure, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so you grew up in this small area outside Detroit. What was that? I mean, what was that like? Well, so, you know, my, I got to give a lot of credit to my parents. You know, you're, you're a product of, of how you, how you grew up and they really were trailblazers. I mean, this would have been when they moved up to this farm, they moved up there to essentially live off the land. You know, they were kind of sick and tired of the commercialization. And this is back then in the, mid to late 60s um so we grew most of what we ate i grew up drinking goat's milk which i still can't stand to this day probably (laughs) but you know that sort of thing we had chickens goats and and just gardening and farming and it was kind of this whole thing of let's get back to get back to nature kind of get back to the things that that matter right i think was basically what they wanted to do well, and it's it always sounds really good to do that, but it's also a hard life because you're dependent so much on Mother Nature. And you, again, if you're living off the land, some years are probably good, some aren't. It's a very difficult life, and but I think that you know gave a, my brother and I a lot of lessons too. You know, nothing comes easy, nothing's handed to you, and you got to work for what you get. I was just gonna say, yeah, you have to work for stuff. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which I think today, you know, it's, it's people kind of forget about it maybe. Oh, I, I totally agree. I think it's, um, it's one of those ideas where you can't just sit and let things come to you. And if you think that way, it's just going to be a really hard life for you. Um, you have to work, you have to like go get the things that you want somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so school, college, what did you want to do growing up? I mean, I really had no idea. Um, yeah, you know, like I think like a lot, but it was, I, I was very fortunate. I, you know, fortune, a lot of luck. Um, as I look back on, on everything and kind of the, the way things laid out, you know, very little or seemingly inconsequential decisions at the time, you know, really shaped and, and guided the rest of my life. And the one thing that I, that I really remember that really changed a lot for me was 
what was I? I was eight or nine years old and went from, you know, a basketball camp practice, saw this wrestling practice happening in, in a different gym, gymnasium and just kind of went to the mat and, and stayed there. And that really just changed everything because that got me out to the East Coast for school, out to Cornell, was recruited to wrestle there. Um, and then, you know, being there, being around all those people, and then moving to New York City after college. I mean, that all was kind of precipitated on that one little random decision when I was a little kid. Isn't that interesting so how that happens? Yeah. Right. It is. Like it you, really is, you yeah. literally walked to a different gym and that changed the next few years of your life. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, what was it like going to Cornell? I, you know, growing up on a farm in a real small community, you're just not exposed. I don't mm -hmm. think to a lot. And, you know, as much, we were very well educated, you know, and, you know, not like that kind of exposure, but I don't, I don't know, just different people and different thoughts and going out to Cornell, you got people from all over the world, really. Yeah. And, you know, people who expect to be the best, like they're not like, Hey, let's just kind of slog through this. Like you got people who are, you know, very, very talented. And just to, to see that kind of mindset, see those kind of people and be around them, you know, I think was the, probably the most attractive or eye-opening thing yeah. for me from being from a small town. Was it a motivator for you to be around people who were constantly pushing to be better and be good? It's a huge motivation. I mean, and and I, I think more than motivation, it's almost just, um, it's a it's a mindset, mm -hmm. you know where where these people and I'm generalizing but especially on the wrestling team I mean some of these guys you know Olympians and All-Americans and national champions and stuff like that you you can't be around them without that kind of mindset rubbing off and that kind of mindset of you know there's nothing saying that I shouldn't be the best you know there's nothing standing in my way like I control my own destiny and you know, that was real eye-opening for me, I think. And, and it, that influenced the rest of my life a lot, too. Oh, that's amazing. Um, my husband was a wrestler in high school, very good wrestler. So occasionally when we play wrestle, I just, I lose every <laughs> single time. There's just no, there's just no, <laughs> don't even try, essentially. My, my wife has learned that lesson, too. <laughs> every now and then she thinks like, all right, this is the time. Get him. Were you were you a good wrestler? Obviously, no, I wasn't. I wasn't. Um, oh come on. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, in the in the grand scheme of things, and and going out to the East Coast, I, you know, I was very very average, as it as it turned out. From what I know, very little what I know about wrestling is that it is a lot of uh, mind over matter, right? I mean, you're using you're you're thinking about the next move and then the move like two moves ahead. Yeah. I mean, coaches often say, you know, when you think you stink in the sense of you weren't thinking, but you had practiced it so many times that it just became natural mm. to respond and react in, in those 
certain ways. And I think, you know, what that means is it's that, it's that mental toughness to do that thousands and thousands of times. It's that mental toughness where your, your body says, I, I can't go further. And then your mind takes over mm. and says, you will go further. Wow. You know, that's, that's the mental toughness. I think that, you know, the wrestling, it's, it's a great sport. So speaking of mental toughness, um, that was a nice little segue into your day job after Cornell. Cause you went to New York city. Yeah. yeah. Um, you were a day trader. That's right. So that's right. I did when a I couple read that... different jobs on wall street, but okay. yeah. So when I read that day trading stocks, I stupidly instantly thought of the Wolf on Wall Street, the movie that I just watched with Leonardo DiCaprio. And I was like, yeah. Rafino did that? And I know that's not the case. <laughs> but explain to me day trading stocks. What is what well, is that? So it's funny that you bring up the Wolf of Wall Street because one of my first jobs there, not knowing anything, yeah. right? I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. I'll take whatever kind of job I can get it was a job similar to the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and, you know, very quickly you realize, like, this is just, this is insane. This is nuts. This is not for me. I, yeah. It was the worst, it was the worst experience in my life. Wow. And so it didn't last very long. But it was, I actually worked with a few guys who had worked with Jordan Belfort. And oh all this my stuff. gosh, but, crazy. Yeah. So, you know, this was towards the end of that time period. This was the early 90s mm-hmm. yep early 90s so there were leftovers from that but day trading was very re- rewarding and a lot like wrestling i'm going to put everything towards wrestling yeah but it was um, a, a very independent what you put into it you could get out of it uh, you weren't reliant on anybody else mm-hmm. it was all up to you you know so all my life i've had jobs where it wasn't just sitting there collecting a paycheck and, you know, doing, going through the, the thing. There was everything where if you didn't work, you weren't going to make any money. So it was, it was rewarding in that sense. And it was at the early days of, we were one of the first groups of day traders, you know, at that time. So it was, it was fun. And it was pretty groundbreaking. I think pioneering. Uh, stressful. I think other people would have different. Yeah, it, was, it was pretty stressful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just um, that whole lifestyle is stressful. Well, I think when you say because it is all dependent on you, right? Like making money and being successful is dependent on you and what you put into it. I think that alone would be just that kind of that burden would be stressful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's and just the lifestyle. But it was I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. You're you're young, you know, doing financially very well in New York City. Like, what more could you ask for? Especially a little farm boy, <laughs> not knowing much, you know? So it was, it was a good time. How long did you do that for? Uh, um, uh, almost 10 years. Okay. I think, no, 10 years at least, 10 or 11 years. So I know that you you started the distillery uh, like 2007, 2008? Yeah, I mean, officially, I got our first product on the shelf in 2007. Okay, wow. I okay. started working on the business plan in 2005, and 2005, 2006, we're developing the, the recipes for, for a lot of our products. So I guess what, 
what changed for you? What switched? Because you're in New York City, you're day trading stocks, you're living a successful life, what sounds like. And then you just said at some point, I'm done with this. I want to open up a distillery. It, it was one of those uh, just life moments where I kind of said to myself, like, is this what you want to do with the rest of your life? Mm-hmm. And, you know, while it was, while it was a, a fun, I can call it fun, I guess, for lack of a better word, but while it, while it was fun, it wasn't rewarding in the sense of my life was distilled, no pun intended, was distilled to this number on a computer screen. And that was it. And it was like, are you really doing anything? Are you adding to the economy? You know, what, what really are you doing? And it, it, it wasn't rewarding. So it was one of those moments where it was just like, if you're not going to do it now, if you're not going to do what you want to do now, you know, what are you waiting for? What are you going to do? So, you know, literally bar napkin idea one night to quitting the next day and, and starting the business plan. So why a distillery? It's a good question. A couple of reasons. I'd always been fascinated by the microbreweries. And I think what, or a couple of things that fascinated me with them was, you know, the sense of the big companies are kind of ruining this category, you know, Budweiser compared to, you know, a real beer. Um, and then the, uh, the other part of it was the, the mechanical aspect of it, all these tanks and the engineering behind it, and that part of it coupled with the create creative part behind it. So you got to, create a product and then create brands, you know, that go with that product. So I'd always been fascinated with that. I brewed beer in college with one of my buddies, you know, in a big garbage can in our apartment, <laughs> just homebrew. And so around the time that, I, that, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, what I want to do, it was like, hey, you could do the same thing with, with distilled spirits that not really many people have done yet. You know, at that time, there were maybe a couple dozen around the country. You know, it's still really yeah. a national time in, that, in well, this industry. I read at the time that you opened uh, Valentine Distilling Company, there were 15 to 20 micro distilleries in the United States. Now there's more than 2,000. So it was over 2,000. Yeah. So it grew rapidly. That, you know, and that was one of the uh, difficult things at that time was there were really not many, if any, you know, paths to follow. There weren't, right. you know, companies to kind of compare yourself to, or I want to be like that or whatever. So it really, for a lot of reasons was jumping into the unknown, you know, in a, in a, in a big way. Also not the best time in our, our country to open up a new business. I mean, that was like 2008. That was when a lot of cities, major cities were suffering and Detroit was certainly on that list. Well, and that's one of the reasons I came to Detroit. You know, it, it was kind of funny. Well, so being a trader, I love buying low. <laughs> so 2007, 2008, you know, it didn't get much lower at, at that point. <laughs> right. So, you know, buying or starting a business, you know, I think, you know, it turned out to be 
you know, it was, it was not, not a bad decision. Mm-hmm. Um, but Detroit in particular, and it was funny at that time, you know, we were still, we, Detroit was still the butt of everybody's joke. You know, now it's become cool. You know, several years later, it's become the cool hip place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but back then it was like, you know, so my investors were like, you got to get Detroit off your label. Like, what do you, you can't have Detroit on a bottle. Yeah. <laughs> a, a high-end bottle of, of spirits. Like, you can't have that on there. And I was like, no, no, it, it'll be okay. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's cool. Don't worry. And, and you were, you know, but you were adamant to keep Detroit, the, the city's name. You were adamant keeping that on the label. Yeah. I mean, this is the manufacturing still, well, maybe not still, but this was the manufacturing capital of the world. You know, you look back on it, Detroit used to be called the Paris of the Midwest. I mean, this was a booming Midwestern city because of all that manufacturing. Um, you know, Detroit wasn't the only place, but I think it was the epicenter, but you know, Cleveland, Pittsburgh, Chicago, Minneapolis, this is where we built stuff. You know, some of the best stuff in the world was built here. You know, it's the industrial revolution forward Mm -hmm. or or whatever. But so it was symbolic for a lot of reasons of like, let's let's show the rest of the world that Detroit still builds the best stuff in the world. You know, Mm -hmm. that kind of that kind of thing was was a lot of was a lot of it for us. Well, let's go back a little bit to 2007, 2008. You're starting yeah. this micro distillery. I mean, were there, what challenges were you facing? I mean, it was, everything was a challenge. Yeah. Everything from, you know, local government, since this wasn't a, a category or a business that anybody knew about yet, even local governments, the, the fire uh, marshals of, of different cities would be like, you can't, we can't do this here. You can't have, you know, explosive, you can't be making flammable explosive stuff and storing it there. And it's like, um, you know, so even from just a local government standpoint, it was just like, no, nah, you can't do this. And you know, what do you, what do you think? And um, so all those kind of hurdles. And then I think probably the biggest hurdle was, this hadn't been done before. So, you know, how do you compete with these massive conglomerates that are dominating the the space right now, you know? Right. And that actually, that's why, you know, nowhere in my business plan, it's funny as I look back on it, you know, 2008 was kind of a turning point for a lot of ways in after 2008 people you know, for the first time, cared about local, things made locally. Before 2000, you didn't hear a peep about, hey, maybe we should buy local, you know, maybe we should support these local things. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked back at my business plan years later, um, I, I didn't have local in there. It was not even a thought of we're going to sell these products, you know, using this locally made or whatever. So Still to this day, I kind of shy away from locally made. I, I tend to refer to us more as a regional manufacturer. Um, 
but that wasn't in the business plan. So I, I really felt like we better make products that compete nationally, internationally on quality, or this just isn't going to work. Right. This is just going to be, you know, a lot of money going up in flames. Um, you know, if we're not able to compete on quality. So that was the driving force behind this. Knowing that, you know, manufacturing is an economic driver. You know, that was part of the Detroit thing too, is we got to get this place back on the, mm -hmm. not that we're responsible for the, for the turnaround in Detroit, but you know, we do generate over a million dollars a year in tax revenues, our little company, our tiny little company. So that was always important, knowing that that supply chain and, you know, and that sort of thing, people kind of forget. 2008 is another example, the, the auto industry. Yeah. And there was a big, you know, a big stink of whether we're going to save the, the auto companies or we're not going to save the auto companies. And I think in a lot of wherever you stand on that issue, I think in a lot of people's minds, it was the the uh, the assembly line worker, the, the the person working on the assembly assembly line in the in GM. Ford didn't take any of the money, so he's GM. But it's, it's way more than that. In this area, especially, all the secondary and tertiary suppliers to the big three are tens, if not hundreds, of thousands of people. Yeah. You know making the different knobs or whatever you whatever is going into a car so it's more than just that first thing it's that whole supply chain so that's was another reason like let's let's bring this manufacturing here and, and see if we can't you know show that it show that it works and yeah. can be done yeah do something so how did you in the beginning there make yourself stand out make valentine distilling company stand out because it's when you walk into a liquor store you know better probably than anyone the shelves are full of all sorts of vodka whiskey bourbon so yeah. how do you make your product stand out you know that was one of those things where if i had known what i didn't know what's the, what's the saying if i had known what i yeah. didn't know i I probably wouldn't have done it. That was one of those things where, I, you know, my gosh, I did not know what I was kind of getting into. And, you know, in those early days, this was probably impossible to do today. I mean, I started this thing on, you know, a shoestring and some duct tape, essentially. Yeah. We weren't really well funded. It was just a true grassroots, which I think is fun because, it would be very, very hard to replicate it today like that. But walking into, after spending the, the whole day making the products and then walking into a liquor store and, you know, talking to the owner, usually the owner is the buyer in a liquor store. Liquor stores are small business owners too, you know, most of them. And, you know, saying, hey, this is my, this is my product. Would you like to try it? And they just couldn't wrap their head around it. They're like, oh, you're a rep for some company or no, 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 I made this. This is, this is mine. And it really was just one customer at a time. Wow. And, you know, it's the way it was one tasting at a time, one customer convinced one person to do it, you know, and then, you know, just word of mouth. And that's really how we've grown. You know, we have not 
we don't have a huge advertising budget still to this day. So it really was one account, one person at a time in those early days. Um, I happen to love that story. I feel like I worked in TV for a very long time and my general manager, who was my general manager for more than a decade, would tell us all the time, you get viewers one at a time, one viewer at a time. And that's how you slowly over the years gain trust and confidence in viewers. And it's the same now as you're growing your business and I'm growing my business. It's one person at a time, right? And I mean, it's that slow, organic push that you're doing. You really believe in your product. And I think people see that. They see your your passion for this. They see yep. your fire for this. And they're like, hey, I'm in. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, it's funny that you say a TV. So you look at TV stations and you're like, wow, these are giant. And it's true. It's one viewer at a time. This will, this goes into a bunch of different areas for me, but you know, we've kind of lost that. I think where now it's, you know, we're not starting this tech company with less than $10 billion and we're just, we're going to hit the, hit the ground running. We're going to buy all of our, our users or our customers or, or whatever yeah. it is, you know, we're just going to buy them. And we're starting to see that in this industry now too. I mean, you know, huge wall street money is coming in for a startup, you know? And so it, it, it spans all different things. And I think, you know, the, the American story, the American dream is to start something from scratch and grow it into you know, something bigger. Mm -hmm. That gave me goosebumps. I agree. Um, and I guess for you, you know, looking back now, um, you really had to have some rough patches in starting this company, but now you look at what you've produced. I just want to read this. Your bourbon consistently rated some of the best in the world, the Valentine vodka world's best by world vodka awards in London, 2016, 2017. So back to back there. Um, you know, you started this from scratch on a bar napkin. Do you look back sometimes and you're just like, man, like, does it almost seem like a dream? Does it seem a little unreal? <laughs> not, you know, not yet. Fortunately, I do get sometimes, sometime to, to reflect on, on what we've done. Usually it's, so you see, I'm here in the distillery. This mm -hmm. is why I'm here every day. I'm still, you know, intricately involved in it. Yeah. So I don't get a lot of time to reflect, but usually if I'm here late at night, nobody else is here. The distillery is kind of dark. I look at it and go, this is, this, that was pretty cool. You know, what we've been able to do, but by the same token, we're, we still got a long way to go. Mm -hmm. You know, this is not the, this is the beginning of the road. We're, I call it like we're in phase two out of, you know, four or five nice. <laughs> different phases. So, so yeah, I mean it's it's fun to look back on it, but we're always working and always got more places to go. Well, I mean you have you have to right. It, otherwise, your only option is complacency. You know you have to keep growing, you have to keep pushing. Um, are you still considered a micro distillery, or have you pushed? Yeah, out? we're okay. definitely. I mean, so even though we're one of the larger, one of the older ones in this space, you know what we make in a year, you know, the big companies spill in a day. Wow. So we're, we still are just 
incredibly, incredibly tiny in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it makes it a little sweeter then to look back and see the growth and see that that one customer at a time. I mean, that makes it so much sweeter. Yeah. 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 I mean, to give you an example, we're in, I think, 10 or 11 states right now. So, you know, even in this country, we have a we have a ways to go. Is the goal all 50? I mean, the goal is the goal is to really put this industry on the map, but to get back to a place where we had regional distilleries, where it wasn't all controlled by six or seven mm-hmm. publicly traded companies. You know, that's that's the that's the real goal is to because I think the the impact just economically and in other ways you know we got to try to find some way back in not just this industry but but a lot of industries so agree oh so agree when you started this was that the goal to you know distribution wise was that the goal to get it in a lot of states or did you want to kind of keep it local in the beginning or did you even know well i really didn't know at the Mm -hmm. beginning but now what what I've kind of figured out and what I like to do is we're, we try to grow organically and strategically. So we could be in 40 States right now. You know, a lot of those States wouldn't be doing a lot of business. So we're, we're trying to be in a few States, do well in those States and then expand from there as we get, as we get, um, you know, stronger and stronger as a company and the, 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 name out there more and more well-known for sure Um, yeah um and right now you're distilling vodka bourbon gin what am i missing rye whiskey rye whiskey the only thing yeah so we do a couple we have a couple different kinds of vodka we have a couple different kinds of gin Mm -hmm. we have i think seven or eight different skews of bourbon and rye whiskey so yeah we uh, while that may sound like a lot it's it's really not a lot of different products um you know basically three different kind of products everyone is like why don't you do you know rums and all this other stuff and my philosophy on that has always been i just want to do a couple things and and do them well yeah um, it's, it might be, uh, it might seem like an easy way to grow and it is an easy way to grow at first just by putting more, uh, SKUs and products out there. But I think long-term, at least that's the decision that I've made. You know, we want to keep it to just these three and, and do well, Sure. make them well, I guess. Well, quality over quantity, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the whole so really, I mean, that's how this thing started was this quality conversation. Maybe I'm jumping ahead. I, I don't know, but um, jump, go for okay. it. Okay, Jump ahead. <laughs> so, you know, my Wall Street days really kind of pointed out to me of what direction we were, we have been heading and still are heading as a country, as a world, really. And I look at it in the manufacturing sense, um, but it really can apply to a lot of different things. But, you know, let's, 
so, so on Wall Street, it, it, it became all about profits and what your profits are going to be next quarter. Mm. So for, for a company, instead of, well, let me start here. Let's, let's start where, you know, I talked a little bit about the Midwest and the, the manufacturing that we used to do. Companies used to become great by making a great product. Growing up on the farm, I used John Deere as an example. My, when I was a little kid, we, had, we bought a tractor used. I think it was late 50s, early 60s. John Deere tractor. My dad still drives that today. He still uses it. Isn't that like crazy? That's, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> you think about things you purchase nowadays. You know, you hope they last, you know, a move in your apartment. You hope the furniture lasts like one move, let alone handing it down to your grandkids. I know. You know, and it, and it just occurred to me that the shift went from let's make a great product, let's become great by making a great product, to let's make as much money as we can. Mm. And I guess you, you can't fault a publicly traded company for that. That's what they're built for. But as a customer, I just really felt shortchanged. I, I felt you're kind of screwing me. And you don't really respect your own customers. Um, so the whole idea behind this company was, let's just get back to basics. Yeah. Let's put the product first. I need to be profitable or else we're not going to be around for 16 years. You know, So we need to be profitable. But I don't need a 300-foot yacht with a crew you know, sailing around the Caribbean, the Mediterranean, you know, I'll take a nice fishing boat. Actually, I'm a pilot, so I'll take a nice little, you know, Cessna or something. I don't need a, you know, private jet right. or whatever. It's just like, let's, let's realign some values and just kind of put things in, in perspective. So that was really the whole impetus of like, let's, let's get away from this profit driven thing where it's kind of a race to the bottom. Yeah. As a customer, all of our choices for products are becoming just the cheapest things that we can get. Even luxury things are made as cheaply as they can be. Absolutely. I'm um I wanted to text my uncle Randy in South Carolina and ask how long he's had his John Deere tractor cuz I grew up yeah. also you know, with a, a, a Southern family that uh, grew everything and we had John Deere tractors. <laughs> um, sorry. I just want to ask him. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's great. It, it would be interesting, especially to see, because they've been making tractors from the early 1900s, maybe late 1800s. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So, but they're a great success story. Exactly. And I think you hit on something for me, realigning our values. Do you feel like if more companies would really focus on that and sort of change that mindset that you just described, you think things would be a little different in the world? I think things would be a lot different. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and it's it's not just the customer experience, of course, you know, but I think that trickles down in, in a lot of different ways. But, you know, here we, here we are, and 
you know, what are you going to do about it? Let's, let's show that this model kind of works too. It seems like wait back then you wanted to open a distillery. Yes. But you really, there was something deeper happening, which you just described. I mean, again, you know, the, from the non-rewarding Wall Street days. Yeah. You know, it was like, let's do something rewarding, mm. you know, personally and hopefully for society too. I don't want to get too deep in that because sure. I am making alcohol. <laughs> so it's not hey. rewarding every, we know, need in every it. sense of the word. <laughs> we need it. But, but it, in my mind, it's like it, if you're going to do something, there's got to be a bigger picture to it. Mm-hmm. It can't just be let's make as much money as we can. Let's, you know, sell as much as we can. There's got to be something else behind it or what the hell are we doing? Totally. You know, as, as people, what are we doing? There's got to so be a gotta why. Be, there's got to be a why. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying I'm saving the world here, but you don't know. I hope there, I hope there is a bigger purpose behind what, what yeah, we do. For sure. You know? Um, My uncle Randy just got back to me and he said, the one he has now, he's had for two and a half years. The one before, he had for 20. There you go. This is not a and... commercial for John Deere. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. So John Deere now is a publicly traded company. Mm-hmm. And I I think a lot has, has probably changed sure. in, in those times. But so let's talk always. about distilling a little bit. Is there any one um, alcohol that's like more challenging than the other? You know, that's a good question. It, it, yes, I think there is. And, and the answer, my answer is a lot of people will kind of scoff at it because the, probably the least respected product, which is vodka, you know, publicly is the least respected, I think is the hardest one to make properly. Okay. Because there is no room for error. The slightest mistake in any, in any part of the process, you're going to, you're going to taste it. Mm. Um, and we're not talking about production vodkas because production vodkas. So this is, you know, from, you know, the largest company, that's what I call the production vodkas. Okay. Anything made at, you know, scale. Um, it's different. What we do is the way it was made a hundred years ago hmm. or even 50 years ago. Pretty recent. Okay. Most of vodka is not made like that anymore. Nowadays, you can, you can essentially take uh, industrial ethanol, put enough additives in it to make it drinkable, slap a fancy label on there and call it good. And that's from the high end on down. That's that's what happens nowadays. So so we're really just going back and not that long, 40, 50 years and distilling it the way it was meant to be made. When you distill it like that, any mistake in the process, you're going to taste because vodka, by definition, is odorless, colorless and and flavorless. Right. Um, So that begs another question is, well, how do you differentiate yourself? You know, it's a whole other conversation from everything if it's odorless colorless and flavorless you know how do you differentiate how do you win the world championships two years in a row um and the answer to that is you get down to other other uh sensory perception of 
you know, texture and viscosity and linger, those sort of attributes. Um, but so in answer to your question, you know, any mistake you're going to taste it in vodka, mm-hmm. you know, bourbon, we are laying the youngest bourbon we sell is five years old. That's sitting in a barrel for five years. Man. You know, if there was a little mistake or a little differentiation, that's going to come out as some unique characteristic five, six years later, you know, so that the vodka, the least respected product, in my opinion, is the hardest one to make quality wise. So you say you're distilling it like it was distilled even 50 years ago. How is that? So what is that process? So traditionally in in pot stills, the still you see behind me is Uh not the vodka still. That's, that's mainly our whiskey still. Okay. Let's see if we can, uh, The, the high low is kind of blocking it, but you see those, those tall columns. Yeah. This is a pot still hooked up to uh, uh, reflux columns, rectification columns. And, you know, that's the traditional way where, you know, incidentally, a, a very large brand been in business, I think from the 17 or 1800s, distilled their product that way up until 30 or 40 years ago. Then, of course, when they sold the family-owned business to a publicly traded company, they used to have pictures of these stills right on the back of their label. Yeah. Of course, they sell. Those kind of disappear off the label because they go to the industrial ethanol model. That's so sad. And that includes putting additives, right? And to me, it's, it's not hard. All it is is a couple pennies, a couple nickels here and there. So what are we trading for Seriously? That? You know, what are you trading to save a couple cents on a cocktail? It's wow. like you're trading addition of chemicals. You're just trading a lot of, you're trading a lot of weight. That's really sad. That's really, really sad. Um, as other micro distilleries started to open, how have you, and you've kind of already answered this, but it sounds like the way you stay relevant is by what you just described, really getting back to how, to, to the root of how things are distilled by taking your time, by, you know, having whiskey and bourbon and barrels for five years and that patience that comes along with that. Yeah. So, you know, having, been in business for 16 years has given us a little advantage in the sense that we can wait for our whiskey to age. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not, a lot of places can get in in a rush to get their whiskey. You need money coming in somehow. You can't wait, right? you know, five or six years. And so, you know, a lot end up not, you, you don't have to, you can sell it at, you know, two years old is the, is a minimum for a bourbon. Um, so just the time that we've had and the, that willingness to, to wait for it, I think differentiates us, but you know, I, I have a hard time comparing ourselves to other craft distilleries, I guess, in the sense of, I like what every craft is, is doing. I'd rather compare ourselves to the multinational publicly traded companies Mm-hmm. you know, where their headquarters are halfway around the world. And they really, 
you know, could care less what's happening on the ground where, yeah. where their products are sold. Like, yeah. ah, it doesn't matter. Where, where's our stock price? Oh, yuck. Yuck, yuck. Um, do you have a favorite? Of our, of my products? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Do you have a favorite child? It's, you, it's which... funny. That's, that's my answer. It's like picking, <laughs> it's like picking your favorite, your child. Mm -hmm. But so, so I usually escape that, that question that way. But in all sincerity, I, I kind of go with, you know, however I'm feeling, but usually with seasons, mm. spring and summer are the, you know, the, the clear spirits. Yep. So gin yep. and vodkas, as you start getting into the fall and winter, you know, that's where we have a barrel aged gin. So we actually age one of our gins, gives it a, a, a deep hearty, mm -hmm. you know, profile. And then, you know, of course the bourbon and the rye in the colder months. Hell yeah. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the way I go. Agreed. I'm, I usually <laughs> am on that same path. Um, looking back at your career so far, cause you're not done. Uh, would you consider yourself a pioneer in this, in this industry? I, I would like to think that. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, even if you look at our home state, um, you know, we are one of the leading three or four states, you know, with the most amount of, uh, of craft distilleries. Mm -hmm. I, I would hope that we've at least played some part in that, and, you know, and showing people around here that, Hey, this is, this is a, a, a viable business, but B one that helps, helps our local economy. Yeah. Like I said, we our small company, we still are small, generates a million dollars for mostly for the state of Michigan. A little bit a lot of federal taxes in there too, but you know that's that's a decent impact yeah. for a small company. We have a you know, sixteen or eighteen employees here, so nothing to scoff at a, for sure. A huge yeah. Uh, what does that fire marshal say about your, your company now? <laughs> we, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's funny. So a lot of the, uh, a lot of the municipalities, municipalities that didn't want us at first. Yeah. Now, of course, have other craft distilleries. They're coming home, <laughs> making a cocktail with the Valentine <laughs> yeah. distilling company yeah. booze. Um, I also read somewhere that you guys have a, a swanky little bar. Yeah, so so right here where I'm sitting is where we make everything. This yeah. is the distillery, but we've only been here eight or nine years. Before that, we made the production was all in our other building where we had the production in the back in about 3,000 square feet and then a 700 square foot like cocktail lounge in front of that. Mm -hmm. Um so we outgrew that, moved the production over here, and then now that building is the is the cocktail lounge. Love it. And it's a yeah, it's a it's a fun place to be. It, you know, I hope when you walk in there, you you get the sense of you could be in any decade. You know, this could have been here fifty nice. years ago. This could have been here yesterday. You know, just kind of a, a timeless kind of quality to it. I'm sure this depends on kind of your mood and what you're feeling when it comes to a drink, but are you a cocktail guy? Or are you just like a on the rocks kind of guy? I'm a, I'm a big cocktail guy. Yeah. 
I mean, for the most part, you know, but simple cocktails, just a couple ingredients, you know, is, is enough for me. I I don't get into it. And, you know, we get a little bit fancy over at the lounge. You got to give the people what they want, but for, (laughs) for the most part, it's simple cocktails with just good ingredients. I mean, go figure. I know. Like, it's, it's not rocket science, right? It really isn't. Yeah. In this house, we're big, like whiskey, lemon. Yeah. That's it. I mean, it's just yeah. when you're drinking, in my opinion, when you're drinking good booze, you don't have to add a lot of junk to it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's where cocktails started was, you know, prohibition when you weren't yep. getting a lot of, a lot of good booze. Exactly. So you had to cover it up. Exactly. Um, we're going to wrap up a little bit and get to the final three, but I just want to say this has been the most pleasant and eye opening conversation. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure of mine. It's been great speaking with you. It's very, um, it's inspirational and humbling to hear you talk about, you know, really you were doing more than just opening up a distillery. You, you're really trying to get back to, you know, this, the idea that this country was founded on, right? Hard work. Yeah. It's yeah, well, thank you. I mean, that awesome. means the world to me. Uh, thank you. Well, I the message that you laid down for me today, I'm picking up every single bit of it, <laughs> and I'm going to be listening to this later and taking notes. So thank you for opening up and being just like brutally honest when it comes to that. I appreciate it. Um, Rafino, we're going to wrap up and get to the final three. Best advice you've ever been given. And I, I'm really, I'm praying it's coming from like a wrestling coach. I mean, it, it has, it could have come okay. from a wrestling okay. coach. It actually didn't, but in a, in a, I don't know if it's necessarily advice, but someone told me a long time ago, you know, there are three types of people, people who watch things happen, people who make things happen and people who go, what the heck just happened? Nice. It's like, which one of those do you want to be? Which one of those do you think you are? Well, I hope I make things happen. Yeah, I would agree. (laughs) That was an easy test. You passed. (laughs) Um, What's your happy place? Uh, In the pilot's seat of uh, my Cessna 182, my clubs. I don't own a Cessna, but my flying club Cessna 182. Going anywhere. Yeah. Just up up in the air flying. It's, It's really liberating I think we didn't we didn't actually talk about that when did you get your pilot's license actually I got it years ago when I was still living in New York City but it's something I always wanted to do and it is just one of those times where you're not thinking about anything else anything that's happening during the day that just all melts away well let's hope when you're that high in the sky (laughs) that you're not thinking about anything else and you're just um my stepdad's a pilot and um was an instructor too. And I, you know, I just have lots of nice memories and some scary ones of being in very small planes. <laughs> that's, that's probably my wife's opinion too. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Dodging thunderstorms. Exactly <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, awesome. Um, and then in all things, food and drink, what do you crave, sir? So right now, you know, it's snowed up here. Uh-huh. We're getting more snow. So right now, all I'm thinking about is like uh, real Mexican food and a Corona yes. sitting on a beach with 
authentic tacos and a Corona. Yes. Yes, sir. I thought you were going to go like a big bowl of hot soup or something, but no, you're, you're dreaming about warm weather right now. That's right. Okay. Um, really quickly before I, I say goodbye to you, where could people find, find your booze? What States are you in right now? So we're primarily right now in the Midwest and a little bit in the uh, mid Atlantic. Okay. However, almost every state can order from one of our partners, uh, our partner liquor stores. So on our website, there's a link and you can actually mail order most of our products to almost every state. Fantastic. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah, make a so push. If you're not around here, you can easily get it. Yeah. And let's make a push to support your fantastic company, Valentine Distilling Company. Rafino Valentine, president and founder. Again, thank you so much for just sharing your story. And I'm I am rooting for you all the way from Oregon. I am just supporting you as best as I can. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma with me, Trish Glose. You can watch this podcast and subscribe on my YouTube channel. Just search Hungry for More, an Epicurean's Dilemma. You can also listen and subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts.